Good evening. <laughs> Welcome back to the WIM conference. I am Cherie Jones. I am part of the Women in Ministry Committee. Are we good back there? I have a thumbs up? Okay, okay. Um, it is my honor and privilege to introduce our keynote speaker for the evening, the Reverend Dr. Martha Simmons. Can we give her a hand? She has a very extensive and impressive resume, uh, which I will not read to you. I will give some highlights and then share um, just why I love her so much um, and why when asked uh, for suggestions of who we could have, she was the first person who came to mind and I was excited that she was available to be with us here at Princeton Seminary, which is, um, I'm the class of 2010, so I'm just glad to have her be here um, at my home uh, this time. So um, Reverend Dr. Martha Simmons is the founder of the Women of Color um, in Ministry Project, which seeks to end one of the frontiers of American prejudice, which is gender discrimination in church, seminaries, and in service organizations. She's also the creator of the African American Lectionary. She's the author of many books that are great resources um, to us as preachers and academicians. My favorite is Doing the Deed, The Mechanics of 21st Century Preaching. It is a book that I go to often as I am crafting my sermons. And she has a weekly broadcast. She goes live on Facebook every Monday. And her broadcast is called Preaching and Preachers. And she has great conversations with leaders um, in the academy, uh, great preachers and pastors of note. And she is really a great resource to us. She has chosen to give all of us such great access to her. And she shares her wealth of knowledge on so many different subject areas. The reason that I love Dr. Simmons so much is that she has been a mentor to me and to so many of my friends and so many people out there who are watching. I know you have had her as your professor. She's been a mentor to you. I consider her to be the queen mother of many of us young preachers, um, women of color in particular, she has taken a great interest in. And she has really um, taken it as her personal responsibility, I believe, to call us women out from playing it small, calling us out from hiding, and calling us to stand up, to speak up, and not be afraid to take up space. And so with that, I present to you the Reverend Dr. Martha Simmons. Thank you, Reverend Jones, Queen Mother. That aged me about 10 years. She said, Auntie, no, you had it right the first time. <laughs> Let's be real. Let's be real. Good evening. Good evening to all of my people online. Uh, I posted that people uh, who couldn't be here should register online, and people registered in droves. So I want to say good evening to you all. And so many of you let me know that you had registered, and so I really, uh, I really appreciate that. And thank you again to Reverend Jones for such a gracious. Um, 
introduction. She is such a dynamic young lady who is going places. So I'm, I appreciate you, I really do. Uh, let me say to the president of Princeton Seminary, in his absence, Dr. Jonathan Walton, who is a old friend of mine, Reverend Mary Beth Anton, coordinator of the Women in Ministry, this whole event, she's the coordinator. Uh, Reverend Julia Feature, who has just loved on me and taken care of me uh, since I got uh, arrived at the airport. Leslie Vernelson, director of the, I hope I didn't kill your name, director of the Center for Women and Gender, uh, Ava Randell, the CTWG student worker, all WIM uh, alumni, Christy Astorito, assistant director of hospitality, uh, Melissa Hout of the PTS Chapel, Ruth Mangal, I hope I didn't slaughter your name, because you're in charge of the food, so we really want to get your name right. All students, faculty uh, present, and again, to everyone online, good evening. Let me begin by saying I have what's called uh, dry mouth disease. I don't know if it's a disease disorder or something. Anyway, I suffer from dry mouth. So you will see me from time to time drinking water or whatever. It is, it's no big deal. You live long enough, you got something. <laughs> you don't believe me? Keep living. Keep living. I am pleased to join you for this wonderful occasion and I am especially honored to join all of the other amazing women who will preach and offer lectures or workshops. Indeed, iron sharpens iron. Please join me in giving a round of applause for all of the women who made this gathering possible and all of our other presenters. All right, before I begin this lecture, I wanna say especially to uh, people in this room, I'm gonna say something that I often say before I preach. If you help me, I won't hold you long. Let me say that again. If you help me, meaning pray silently, applaud, stand up, nod your head, say help a Lord, something. If you help me, I won't hold you long. In fact, if you help me, even if I hold you long, you won't know you've been held long. <laughs> My subject for the evening riffing off your theme is new moods and methods for safely ministering in the midst of storms. New moods and methods for safely ministering in the midst of storms. Women doing ministry are familiar with ministering in the midst of storms, from the women in the Bible who did ministry, all the way to Catherine Oceana and Julian of Norwich, Anne Hutchinson, Julia Foote, Jermaine Lee, Zephyr Elaw, Sojourner True, Antoinette Brown Blackwell, Louise Fleming, Mary Baker Eddy, Anna Howard Shaw, Ida Robinson, uh, Renya Ramirez. We know that women have always done ministry in the midst of storms. 
But although we are familiar with ministering in the midst of storms, I want to suggest something that most of you already know. Women in ministry are still suffering unnecessarily. And due to this constant unnecessary suffering, I am postulating that we need to prioritize some new moods and methods to do ministry safely in the midst of storms. It was not until the 1970s, the president, <laughs> thank you for joining us. <laughs> such a character. He's such a character. <laughs> yeah, he would. He would. Amen. I love you. Thank you for coming. And congratulations. It was not until the 1970s and 1980s that seminary doors swung open wide for many women in ministry but not the doors of senior pastorates, not tenure track doors, bishopric doors, or the doors of denominational leadership. But thanks to women like Katie Cannon, Mary Daly, Elizabeth Schuessler, Fiorenza, Dolores William, Phyllis Tribble, Rosemary Radford Ruther, Emily Towns, Ada Maria Isa Diaz, Rita Nakashima Brock, Kwok Bulan, Buyang Lee, and others, we received the first round of First Nation feminism works by white feminists, womanists, Maharista, and Asian and Asian American women scholarship that is still setting women, the academy, churches, and society free. But after the 90s, it was as if someone slammed on the brakes and said, that's too much of that, too much equality, too much speaking out, too much telling the truth to men and the church and the truth about scriptures. Denominations did not make us senior pastors unless they gave us churches that were on life support yes. and then underpaid us to make them whole and healthy again. Then about 10 years ago, around 2010 or so, uh, things started to look up again. An exciting scholarship emerged and more women became pastors and leaders in denominations and seminaries. But as quickly as that began, it was over. Now here we are in 2023 and we do not have control of our bodies if we are of childbearing age and go to a doctor. The church helped politicians do that. We are still underpaid if we get a paid job in ministry at all. Tenure is shrinking in the academy, and we are still the last to be chosen as denominational and academic leaders. We are still celebrating first, but not 15th. I'm glad for the first woman in any area of ministry, the first one to crack a particular glass ceiling, but the one I want to meet is the 15th, yeah. not the first. 
I am certain that to many women, that too many women are in distress. So we need to prioritize some new moods and new methods for safely ministering in the midst of storms. We need safe harbors. Over time, I have prioritized some ways to help women do ministry well in the midst of all the storms intended to blow us over and knock the life out of us. And I want to share some of them tonight. First, we need to prioritize different moods. Why do I suggest a change in moods? By our moods, we can tell what is going on inside us. They come through in our work, our preaching, our parenting, our relationships, and in our health. According to Dr. Kat Suko of the Daner Institute, many studies have shown that your mood can influence your perception, motivation, decision-making, social interactions, and even more basic cognitive processes like memory and attention, end quote. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, scientists are learning that genetics, medications, medical issues, and other factors can alter neurotransmission in areas of the brain linked to moods, like the hippocampus, the thalamus, and the amygdala, end quote. Aside from genetics, medical conditions, and medicine, what is negatively altering the moods of women in ministry? I mean, you've seen it. You've seen women suffering. You probably have suffered. Sociologists Patricia Holman and Amy Burdett write, gender discrimination can be associated with poorer health outcomes and poorer moods. The more restrictions there were on women's participation in the life of a congregation, the worse the reported health outcomes. Studies specific to female clergy health are scarce. However, the health of a female, cler of female clergy was assessed in 2011 by Jenny Roth, Leslie Francis, Mandy Robbins, and others. And they looked in the areas of physical health, psychological health, religious health, and spiritual health. And they found in their health check that women did poorly in all of the health areas. Dr. Joshua Bloom, who has studied clergy well-being for 20-plus years, says in an article in the Journal of Religion, the pandemic seems to have exacerbated many of the legacy issues that undermine clergy well-being, such as theological schisms between pastors and local members, clergy isolation, work-life tensions, shrinking local church resources, and the individual prejudice against female clergy and pastors of color, these do not seem to have abated at all. Pastors tend now to be more unhealthy than other adults." End quote. The truth is, we all know too many women in ministry who are sick, especially since the pandemic began. They are weighed down. Too many feel adrift. Too many feel as if they are all alone. Too many are about to explode and are unsure where and how to unleash their anger. 
But sisters, I do not want you to believe that these are the health outcomes and accompanying moods with which we must be stuck. First, if one of your moods is genetic or caused by a medical issue or medicine, please get diagnosed and treated. If you believe something is off, it probably is. But beyond the moods caused by genetics, medical issues, and medicine, we can offer ourselves moods that will make us safer and healthier. Safer and healthier. When I speak of moods, I am speaking of flourishing in ways that can be felt in our brains, our bodies, and our purses. According to the 2017 Duke Flourishing in Ministry Project Report, there are four dimensions of flourishing in ministry. Everyday happiness, resilience, self-integrity, and thriving. The report defines happiness as the emotional dynamic and the subjective quality of our daily lives. According to the report, everyday happiness is associated with stronger immune systems. Resilience, the report says, is our capacity to adapt, change, and respond to life challenges, and also our capacity to grow, learn, and develop new capabilities and capacity. Self-integrity is the third building block of flourishing. It means knowing ourselves well and on balance feeling good about who we are. It includes living up to our moral standards and how we treat others and how we show up in the world. The final dimension of flourishing is thriving. According to the report, thriving is the meaning and significance we experience in our lives. Our sense of having values and beliefs that inspire us, create purpose, and provide moral guidance. These four elements are what I am after for all women in ministry. Everyday happiness, resilience, self-integrity, and thriving. We need all four to flourish. So what do these four look like when you put them or they show up as moods? In other words, what are the moods that will help us flourish? This is what my 20 plus years of work with women has shown. The first mood that I believe we should prioritize is the mood KMA. If you want to do ministry safely in the midst of storms, you need to prioritize KMA. What in the world does she mean by KMA? Someone is asking. KMA stands for, <laughs> someone said something. KMA stands for Know My Axios. <laughs> Meaning, know your worth and deservedness. There is safety in knowing your worth. Without knowing your worth, you will never be completely safe. In ancient Greek, the word axios means I am worthy. Some of you know the more vacular, uh, vernacular usage of the abbreviation KMA. <laughs> well, I mean that too, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. 
When you know your axios when necessary, it places you in the mood to tell people to KMA. <laughs> Women in ministry must possess a mood that asserts their worth and deservedness to thrive in rabidly patriarchal context like our churches, schools, politics, and nonprofits while we change these contexts. And I know you may not believe you are courageous enough to display this mood to leaders in your church, a board, professors, supervisors, bishops, and church folk. But it will be difficult for you to flourish unless you know your axios. This is a mood that says you understand what it takes to safeguard your vocation and your life. Part of what it takes is the steeliness to prevent people and processes from assaulting any valued area of your life. When you know your axios, you know that you have not failed God if you stand up for your well-being and leave a church or any ministry work. Bell Hooks said sexism is the only form of oppression in which the oppressed are meant to love their oppressors. In other words, if sexism is oppressing you, you have not failed God or your vocation by removing yourself from such oppression. After I came of age and found myself in any unhealthy situation, a phrase would leak to mind from time to time. The phrase is, there comes a time. There comes a time. There comes a time when your health matters more than a job. There comes a time when you must be your authentic self and not the pastor, the denominational, or a church says you should be. There comes a time when you can no longer allow people to treat you like a mule just because you are strong enough to bear a heavy load. There comes a time when you will realize that those who have counted you out simply couldn't count. <laughs> there comes a time when through words and deeds you must be prepared to show that you know your axios and are prepared, if necessary, to tell anyone harming you to KMA. <laughs> a large part of knowing your axios is knowing your environment. Life is already too difficult and ministry too unforgiving under ideal circumstances for anyone to live into misfitted idealism. There is no nobility in investing excessive personal and spiritual energy in the wrong environment. You have real talent, but you may be in an environment where it will never be properly recognized. Know your axios and have the courage to run towards an environment that appreciates you and your worth. No matter how hard such an environment is to find or how long it takes to find it, you must find it or create it. Also, women in ministry who do not know their axios too often believe that they are imposters. 
and that sooner or later, someone will reveal their inadequacy. But here, organizational psychologist Adam Grant offers what I believe is a great truth. Grant says imposter syndrome isn't a disease. It's a normal response to internalizing impossibly high standards. Doubting yourself doesn't mean you're going to fail. It usually means you're facing a new challenge and you're going to learn something. Feeling uncertainty is a precursor to growth, end quote. So begin practicing and embracing a KMA mood. Walk in the world like your footsteps matter. Walk into every meeting of any kind like your footsteps matter. You will inspire other women and girls and leave a greater legacy. Hopefulness. The second move that women need to prioritize to do ministry safely in the midst of storms is hopefulness. Radical hope is a safe harbor. C.R. Snyder defines hope as the perceived capability to, to derive pathways to desired goals and motivate oneself via agency thinking to use those pathways. Some people do not believe in being hopeful. They reduce hope to nothing more than an opioid to sedate public rage. Some reduce hope to optimism or blind faith in historical progression. I call that fake hope. <laughs> fake hope is used as a tool of bourgeoisie interests to keep the oppressed in closed cycles of structural abuse, forever longing for progress to roll in on the wheels of inevitability and blow in on the wheels of someday. But as a black woman born in a shotgun house with the assistance of a midwife in Chula, Mississippi, that's not the way I understand hope. I see hope more in a blues register that takes the grimness and the griminess of reality seriously and then harvest it or transcends it. Gritty blues hope learns how to handle failures without being reduced by them and to position oneself to be somebody's hope. Professor Jan Holton of the Duke Pastoral Care Program speaks of a rising of hope. She says we can't always see across a horizon. What is across a horizon can amaze us and terrify us. Andrew Lester, who also writes on hope, offers that while hope is an individual disposition, it is difficult to sustain outside of community. I hope all women hear that. If you want to live in a hopeful mood, you need community to maintain that hope. Ecosystems of hope. You will not remain hopeful long if you try to do it in isolation. It is too difficult to do when the world is unsupportive of women and endangers them in myriad ways every single day. Psychologist and Black Lives Matter activist Della Mosley said that radical hope includes being attentive in each moment to the past and the future, particularly as these relate to histories 
of oppression and resistance for persons of color. Every act of color brings forward the wisdom of our ancestors, end quote. Remember that list of sheroes I read earlier? They make up an ecosystem of hope. Call their names from time to time. Add other sheroes to the list and remember their journeys and then grab yourself some more hope and continue your journey. Mostly also says radical hope looks like resistance that brings faith and agency together through acts of activism that break open the possibility of change. Then I love the quote by theologian Susan Nelson. She suggests that hope is found in the eschatological imagination that gives rise to those acts large and small that open the future. Even in the face of great despair, each act of kindness, love, care, generosity, defiance, or resistance that refuses to let suffering and evil have the last word is the essence of hope, end quote. That's why I was excited about this gathering. It is one more event that breaks open possibilities for change and does not allow patriarchy to have the last word. That's hope. Talking about patriarchy and contesting sexism breaks open the possibility for change. The third move that we need to prioritize to do ministry, and I, I'm an old woman, so I sweat. <laughs> the third move that we need to prioritize to do ministry safely in the midst of storms is that of hell raising. When I speak of hell here, I speak of a force that circulates throughout society to harm persons at the deepest level of their being. One need not die to experience hell. Our churches are hell. Denominational meetings are hell. Gender biased, gender biased and gender inequitable training programs are hell. Hell is here on earth for women. So when one is hell raising, she is venturing throughout society, lifting a deep perniciousness from the environment. She is a person getting all the hell out of her way and the pathways of other women. Hell raisers are competent and courageously able to address conflicts, speak against wrongdoings, and risk, the status, uh, risk their status for the sake of justice. Hellraisers are women who make history in some shape, form, or fashion. Hellraisers are the women who are propelled by their desire to see justice done. Hellraisers raise us all up. Women in ministry who raise hell recognize that they have much to lose, but they're willing to take the risk anyway. The late Senator John Lewis said, we all should get into good trouble. The John Lewis type of good trouble is hell raising. Hell raising is prophetic resistance to injustice. But we will not get into good trouble if 
our fear of our personal losses has a stranglehold on us. We will not raise hell if there are seminaries, denominational officials, supervisors, district superintendents, or other power brokers in our realm who can convince us that they can ostracize us and we will not recover. Amen. Or that they can take something away from us that we need badly. 28% of clergy will experience being fired in their career anyway. You can Google that. <laughs> and we know that that number is higher for women. So you might as well speak up and do some good for the common good anyway. <laughs> Hellraisers are grown. They are developed watching one circumstance after another of injustice, patriarchy, of denominational bigotry, and all the isms that arise to choke the life out of people's dreams. And while they are watching, they know that they should say something or do something, and at some point, there comes a time. It is perfectly reasonable if you want to build something new or start something new. But if you decide to stay within your current denominational, academic, or other systems, at least do like Jesus and raise some hell every now and then. <laughs> Knock over a table. <laughs> Learn how to use whatever today's equivalent of a whip would be. In the words of Audrey Lord, your silence won't save you. So when necessary, and there will come a time, do some hell raising. Do some hell raising. The fourth move that we need to prioritize is joy. Let me quickly say a few words about joy. Mary Daly, the late great Mary Daly, would tell us that joy is knowing that you will be punished just as much for being an itty-bitty feminist so you might as well go all the way. <laughs> joy is, be, is going all the way. Katie Cannon would tell us that joy is doing the work our souls must have. Mother yeah. Teresa said joy is prayer. Joy is strength. Joy is love. Joy is a net of love by which you can catch souls. Pierre Chardin said joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. And Henry Nouwen said, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it day after day after day. Joy is a health-promoting, not a hope-destroying mood. All of everything I've said previously means that joy is an inbreaking force of God that can disrupt and disentangle so much in the world that is sad and hateful and mean. That's why black folk who were fighting for rights that they deserve but did not have saying, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. Joy is a spiritual orientation. It says, even when the tempest is raging, or in more modern terms, when all hell is breaking loose, you trust God. You trust God for your forward movement, for your well-being, for your covering, for your job, for your family, and for your life. 
Maya Angelou said, I can be changed by what happens to me, but I refuse to be reduced by it. Joy halts the reduction of our dreams and aids in our resilience. Quite importantly, choose theology that affirms your joy because that will strengthen you. The joy of women is subversive in an androcentric society. Our joy is a posture of resistance against the vortex of maleness that want women to stay in their place. Joy beats back the implications of gender disinheritance. Now let me say a few words about methods. Those were moves, let me say something about methods uh, for flourishing. First method that I believe women need to do ministry safely in the midst of storms is to know that they can do ministry if they are scared since they're doing it scarred. Trust me, you, you, you haven't escaped patriarchy. If you're doing it scared, you're already scarred. If you want to be safer as you do ministry in the midst of storms, you need a sense of your personal theology. And then you need to live into it and let it grow you to the point of busting out of some of those boxes that you may be trapped in. And while you are doing this, don't worry about being scared. Even if you are scared, do what you need to do anyway. You don't have to let them see you sweat. The whole world does not need to know your business. It's not their business. But it is okay if the people you trust know. The risk-inducing nature of ministry requires us to arrive in pulpits, classrooms, communities, schools, and legislatures with a nevertheless posture. We can do our work with the scars despite our fears. When I preached my first sermon, I stood in front of 1,200 plus people in the oldest black church west of the Mississippi. No one had helped me prepare my sermon. The pastor didn't even look at the sermon. The church was about to split because the California region of the denomination, which at the time was the largest black denomination in America, had threatened to kick us out of the denomination if I was allowed to preach. I had been canceled twice. And on this third occasion, it had been made clear to me from my advocates and my adversaries that if I failed, that would be the end of women preaching in that church for a long time and possibly forever. Of course I was scared. I was 20-something, and all of this weight had been placed on me. But I relearned something I already knew. The God who calls you will keep you. And you can believe in yourself and have doubts at the same time. Faith crawls, as does a child, before it walks and runs. We all have fears. That does not make us weak. It doesn't make us weak clergy or bad Christians. It just makes us human. I promise you, we can do this work scared and scarred. Fear is a symptom of our humanity 
and scars are signs that social wounds did not kill us. Lucille Clifton put it into prose this way. She said, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and failed. Fear and scars are add texture to our ministry. If you are fearful, fearful, play the what-if game. Play the what-if game. Every time the next something comes to you and it scares you, play the what-if game. For example, I ask myself, what if my first sermon died, fell flat? I answer, God had still called me and I would preach again somewhere after I learned how to preach. <laughs> I said, what if I embarrassed the pastor who went out on a limb and pushed for me to preach? Well, my answer, he had put up many men who were horrible preachers <laughs> and kept his job. So surely, he would keep his job if I failed. <laughs> my friends, my mother and uh, I, we, we, we asked about 50 questions over the two years it took me to get to that pulpit. And no matter what happened, no matter what question I asked of myself, it was clear to me that God who called me yeah. would keep yeah. me. I did it scared, and over that two years, they scarred me, and I did it anyway. Your fears are sometimes internal mechanisms attempting to look out for you and keep you safe, discerning, careful, and focused. Dr. Elizabeth Siegel says fear can be productive. Fear serves valuable purposes the purpose of helping us survive by making us alert to dangerous situations. Siegel says we can face our fears when we are maximized productive fear, which means recognizing that challenges, uh, recognizing fear that challenges us to master difficult tasks. We must learn about things we fear. Knowledge is power and helps us gain power. Even if you have to do it scared, please do it. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the resolve to do ministry when scared. For women in ministry, courage means to do it scared and scarred. You can do it scared and scarred, and there will come a time. The second method that women need to prioritize and actualize to do ministry safely in the midst of storms is just being. Now I'm not going to say a lot about this, just being. This means not tying your worth to producing, but to your innate divineness. Just you being you is sufficient. The notion that you are insufficient until you produce what some system says you must is crippling and killing women. It makes us and men counters instead of ministers, counting butts in seats and coins in trays. 
It makes us live with a fear of scarcity. There are never enough churches to pastor, never enough opportunities, not enough spouses, not enough money, not enough connections, not enough mentoring, enough time. So I must demean or desert some woman or play some callous game to get what I believe I deserve. It places us always under what I call the specter of death. The specter of death. Because men and sometimes women will call us incompetent or look to replace us because we did not produce what they believed we should have produced. Women need to accept what Sean Dove said. Sean said, you have nothing to prove, just gifts to share. So just be who you are. The truth is that ministry charged with the fuel of capitalism, the requirements of boards, denominational leaders, and academic leaders can all make us believe we're not enough unless we produce what others say we must. But there is a major difference between production and determining your worth by production. This country had people working 50 plus hours a week and paid them for 40. Had them taking work home and afraid to take their full vacation time because companies, institutions, and corporations decided it was okay to work people to death while underpaying them and giving them poor and no health care, no sick leave or maternity and paternity leave. Thank God for the great resignation that occurred during the pandemic. In 2021, more than 47 million people said, to hell with this. This ain't living. I cannot continue to let you suck the marrow of my bones for this job, including church jobs. People said, in essence, you will not define me only by my production and mistreat and underpay me too. And they were right. To do ministry safely in this and any season, women need to prioritize just being themselves not someone's pastor, someone's support, someone's assistant, someone's spouse, someone's anything. Just be a child of God. The third method women need as a safe harbor for doing ministry in the midst of storms is subversiveness. All the moves and methods I have recommended so far are entrance points or building blocks of social and theological subversiveness that bring gender and power into dialogue with the church and society. Understood properly, subversiveness demystifies the widespread assumption that fighting for women's safety only derives from an overarching Asian feminist, womanist, maharista, white feminist, or indigenous women's subjectivity that solely benefits and represents women. Safeguarding women affirms and normalizes all genders and their identities and expressions through compassionate teaching and carefully curated engagement in church and the public square. 
as a digi-modern methodology, as we fight subversively against patriarchy, we declare that all women are loved and affirmed by God while cultivating an atmosphere where men know we are doing community building even if they do not support us in it. We are not against anyone. We are just prioritizing women. When women live subversively, they center women's voices, especially those on the margins, such as women as the indigenous women, Maharistas, and Asian and Asian American women. Wherever power is at work, white, patriarchal, cis, hetero, or otherwise, subversion is possible. The theatrics of domination and exclusion beckon the enactment of resistance as a practice of public love and righteous discontent. This is everyday work, not just pulpit fanfare or lecture content. Subversive spirituality is the work we do all week long. Dr. Marla Frederick would say it's the work we do between Sundays. The ricochet impact of subversive everydayness unsettles falsely fixed assumptions of gender and race, destabilizes categories of meaning like doctrine and polity, contests the rigidity of denominationalism and liturgical correctness. That was a mouthful. <laughs> In his book, The Practice of the Everyday Life, Michael Serto asserts that strategies are actions available to persons privileged by the power regime. In contrast to a strategy, a tactic is a calculated action determined by the absence of a proper locus. The space of a tactic is the space of the other. That's us. Thus, it must play on and with a terrain imposed on it. It is a maneuver within the enemy's field of vision and within enemy territory, end quote. As much as we love the church, it has been the occupied terrain of patriarchy. It has been a colonized terrain of invading mediocre men who believe that, might as well tell the truth. <laughs> who believe they are unable to keep the community alive without exploiting and extracting so much from women. Our sanctuaries, seminaries, and boardrooms are ripe venues to practice holy subversiveness because men believe they own these domains despite how women fund them, populate them, improve them, and sustain them. Tactics are vibrant moments of subversion. Every single day, women in ministry striving for life against the deleterious forces of patriarchy must relish killing patriarchy blow by blow. Subversion never topples a house in one quick blow, but it weakens the already tenuous foundation of its public support. Subversive action is a blow-by-blow -blow enterprise. When women write, that can be a blow against patriarchy. When women teach, that can be a blow. When women rear children, that can be a blow. 
When women paint, that can be a blow. When women march, that can be a blow. And when women organize, that definitely can be a blow. We must fight against patriarchy. The heart of subversive, the subversiveness method necessitates giving daily oxygen to the belief that we are the ones we are looking for. And I've tried to say throughout this lecture, self-advocacy and everyday denunciation of the matrix of androcentrism is how we protect ourselves. The final method for our safety is to prioritize women. The late, great Mary Daly, who held three earned doctorates, came to in, uh, Emory University when I was a student there. I invited her, and we set up a woman-only gathering, and it was organized so that women could ask Dr. Daly anything that they want to for an hour after she finished her public lecture. And one woman looked at Dr. Daly, and she asked her, how do I get and keep a husband and have a family while doing ministry? Dr. Daly responded, Few women theologians will come to campus and hang out with you. I have a great deal of ministry experience and theological knowledge, and out of all of the questions you could have asked me to help you grow in ministry, you chose to ask me about men. Why not explore more relationships with women? I have spent most of my life in the church, over 55 years, I have loved studying the life and history of the church, especially the black church, for the last 35 years. And after all that time, one thing finally came crystal clear to me. If we want to do ministry well in the midst of storms, meaning find safe harbors, women need to prioritize women, starting with themselves. Someone wrote, if we were to dig up the bones of women, we would often find that they died from being worked to death, not prioritizing themselves. One big reason we are less safe and have so many difficulties doing ministry is that women, lay and clergy, are not prioritizing women. We are still prioritizing men. In a 2015 study of the United Methodist Church, it said that 25% uh, of 25% of those studied were women. And it said that women often did not believe in themselves. And they often took the default role as the caretaker of the family and therefore a congregation. The women in the study also noted difficulties in setting boundaries and in taking time off. According to the study, women also felt the need to work harder and perform better to prove themselves to congregations who would prefer a male pastor, even if he was a sorry male pastor. And that's a direct quote from the survey. Your denomination, whatever it is, does not care about women. Don't get missed at me if you believe I'm wrong. If you believe I am being negative, you believe I'm being down on the church, don't take my word for it. Check the stats for your denomination and then tell me I'm wrong. 
Check the compensation rates. Check the number of ordinations. Check the amount of money given to women students in seminary. Check the number of women made senior pastors of churches with more than 50 members. Check the number of adjudicatory boards on which women serve. And check the number of women bishops. Check the numbers. Prioritize women. We are still hiring men first in our seminaries, although women attend seminaries at higher rates and get PhDs at a high rate. We are still selecting men most as deans. But women in the church are not outnumbered. We are outorganized by those who do not prioritize women. You cannot say that you prioritize women while supporting or accepting systems that crush, exploit, and dehumanize them. Audrey Lord also said women of today are still being called upon to stretch across the gap of male ignorance and to educate men as to our existence and our needs. This is an old primary tool of all oppressors to keep the oppressed occupied with the master's concern, end quote. The master is occupying a woman's brain when I hear them say things like, I just can't trust women. They will stab you in the back. They'll get jealous. They'll lie on you. That means for me, patriarchy has gotten a hold of you and blinded you to how amazing women are and to the fact that if it were not for women, you would not even have basic rights in society or in the church. Instead, as Dr. Daly said, Educate yourself about one another. Prioritize women. If you're over 30, mentor a young woman. Someone said, and when you get to where you're going, turn around and help her too. For there was a time not long ago when she was you. If you're voting for a pastor for the church you attend, make certain that the search committee puts on its search announcement that women are welcome and make sure they mean it. If your denomination is electing new officials as the heads of any areas, push for women. If you're taking classes at a seminary, take classes taught by women. Ask professors where are the women on their syllabi. Invite women lecturers and preachers. Prioritize women. If scholarships are being given to students, give them to women. To hell with the there are qualified men to BS. There are always many qualified men. Guess why? Give the scholarships to women. If you sit on the board of a foundation or any group giving out grants, give them to women. Go for a walk with a woman. Read and discuss a great book with a woman. Listen to inspirational music by women. Enjoy a great meal with a group of women. Talk to women pastors. When you hear a negative story or read one on Facebook or Twitter about a woman in ministry, give the benefit of the doubt to the targeted woman. Unless she's caping for men, of course. Yeah, yeah, you all can ask the young people what I mean by caping. <laughs> Prioritize trans and lesbian women. 
and stop asking them to destroy part of themselves to belong. The women you prioritize need not be part of your denomination. They just need to be trustworthy and understand your struggles. Converse with women who are not in ministry but are supportive. Prioritize women. The prioritization of women is also tied to what we teach girls. Do not teach girls that they are the weaker sex or cursed because of anything that happened in the Garden of Eden. Teach girls the text of terror. Shout out to Dr. Phyllis Tribble. Teach girls what it means to have a hermeneutic of suspicion and how to deconstruct and reconstruct a text when they read the Bible. Teach girls that women are often missing from text and unnamed in text what they should not be. Teach girls that for nine months a woman carried the word in her womb and can therefore surely carry it for 20 or 30 minutes in a pulpit. Teach girls <laughs> that women were the first to announce the resurrection. Do not teach girls that they have to submit to their husbands. Teach them that there are at least seven types of marriage in the Bible and that Paul got some stuff wrong. Just like he got it wrong, all of the things he said about slaves returning to their masters. Teach them that men have too long decided which texts are culturally based and time bound and which texts are intended for all time. Teach girls that they can be preachers and prophets and priests. Then teach girls that women are typically underpaid and that they should not accept that. Then teach girls and women how to negotiate and handle conflict, not run from it. Teach girls that even when women stand against them, it's patriarchy that's really at birth. Then teach them how patriarchy is embedded throughout society around the world. Again, Audre Lord. She says, for women, the need and desire to nurture each other is not pathological, but redemptive. Wow. And it is within that knowledge that our real power is discovered. It is this real connection which is so feared by a patriarchal world. Only within a patriarchal structure is maternity the only social power open to women. Interdependency between women is the way to freedom, which allows the I to be, not in order to be excused, but in order to be creative, end quote. Please prioritize women. Thank you for listening.